Hello, all of you good opera lovers out there in podcast land. This is Jonathan Dean, dramaturg at Seattle Opera, and with me is Peter Cazares, Seattle Opera's champion for Benjamin Britten. Well, what a nice thing to be. Peter, you were not only uh, in our very first ever Turn of the Screw. True. You, you have done, I think, all of the Britain that we've done since then. Billy Budd, you were our, our superlative, memorable Captain Veer. Thank you. And the Midsummer Night's Dream they did with the Young Artists Program. And then, of course, this production is sort of main stage graduation of the one that was initially done in, in Bellevue in 2006. For the Young Artists in 2006. Aiden, who is just so clever about these things, he saw the produ- pictures of that and he went, hmm, it's basically a large black wall. So is our Don Giovanni set. So we took the Don Giovanni set and he said, do you think you could make the, ma- the turn of the screw work on this? That's the Don Giovanni that, that Robert Dahlstrom had That's designed right. for Chris Alexander, right. I think, in 07, and then we used it again in 14. Right, and Robert was thrilled to work on it again and try to retrofit it for this turn of the screw. But I have to say what has happened Part of me at first thought, oh, yeah, I can do that thing I did in 2006, and I can do that thing I did. And then the answer is actually not so much. Because first of all, we're dealing with different people. And I definitely tailor what I do to the talents involved. Chief among those differences is the fact that our boy in 2006 was the rather astonishing David Korn, who was a countertenor. He wasn't a boy at all. He was an adult. Well, he was a 20, well, yeah. He was the boy in the show. He he was about 23, and he looked 15. This role is, it's, a, it's not that hard to sing, because Britton was a genius about that. But emotionally, certainly the governess and Miles are both really difficult. Miles, because he has to go to a place where he is willing to be crushed to death in the final scene, basically, between the opposing tonalities of the <laughs> governess and Quint, A major and a flat major, also because he has to do things and act in a way in public that most 13-year-olds don't feel comfortable doing. Mm. You realize that what looks on the page like, I don't know what you mean, that's not the way it's supposed to sound in a production. (laughs) You know, he has to really go, I don't know what you mean! And he has to really let it go. That emotion, and, and you're, you're, in your experience, most Mileses get that, and that eventually, uh, you know, but it's I like, can't just ah, walk through this. I actually, well, have to, to, right, to because sing it like most, you mean it. Well, most of them are choristers who have spent all their lives being extremely well behaved. Uh-huh. The most dramatic evidence of this was in the first time I did it in Israel in a production which was quite great. Leonard Bernstein was going to be there, and I knew him at that point, and I invited him to come, and he came. Everyone was very excited that he was there. And there was a boy, a sweet, smart, red-headed kid. In the middle of Malo on the night that Leonard Bernstein was there, it was literally, Malo, 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 I would rather be. <laughs> and he, you saw him kind of go, and then he got it back, and then all for the rest of the evening, it was like, is it there, is it not there, is it there, is it not there? Oof. I think it was actually the last performance, which is why we were relieved. You know, and Lenny was so gracious <laughs> and sweet. But sort of the worst nightmare imaginable for any performer. Worst, what could be worse than having your voice crack during a performance of Turn of the Screw? Having your voice crack when Leonard Bernstein <laughs> is listening. I have to say that... I think with our boys, if there is an unfortunate incident once or twice, they have enough of a technique to be able to sort of get them through. 
to flip back around. Yeah, and, because and they're you know they're they're all trained singers and they've dealt with this kind of thing. So that's I'm knocking on the mythical wood. Anyway, so this time around it has been different. Plus, in 2006, we didn't have any projections. Yes, well, that's one of the main things because I looked at this uh, wall and I realized that it is—it's not just a wall; it is a black wall with nubbly stuff, which is actually kind of ideal for projection. So, my first thought was that I had to bring in Adam Larson, who was a renowned uh, projection designer. He did the projections for the symphony's production of *L'Enfant et les Sortilèges* last year. Mm. So Aidan knew of his work and was interested to bring him on board. And this is going to be a Seattle Opera debut, and I'm really thrilled about that. So Adam and I um, have been talking about this for a while now. And so he will be actually sitting next to me and creating content while he's watching and while I'm working. It's, it's, very, it's an interesting way to work because he is able to work in a way that, is, that actually looks concrete. There are going to be moments when you look and you think, oh, there's a house on stage. But there's no house on stage. It's just a projected house. But it will look like there's a house on stage. And then there's times when, you know, the house will morph into something that is kind of strange. And one of the things we've realized about this version is that that wall actually has become a character. It's got its own life. It's got its own life and its own secrets. Yeah. Uh, but let's talk about Benjamin Britten in particular, since you, you have had a lot of experience uh, with Britten. The only uh, Seattle opera Britten performance that I think you probably weren't involved with was Seattle, the only op- ever Seattle opera, Peter Grimes, which was 1983. Right. Glenn right. Ross had planned it, but Spade Jenkins produced it. Right. Because it was sort of the when the baton passed between the two of them. Right. Um, and starred uh, John Vickers. Ed Souter did the um, so-called American cast, or whatever it was called. Yeah, at back that in time. those days, they had the international and the national. But uh, Vickers got to town and got sick, so uh-huh. uh, Souter did opening night, and all the photos that were ever taken at the show were of, of Souter. Souter. Right. Uh, but Vickers did sing at a, a couple of the performances yes. here, which some Seattle opera people with long memories will. How wonderful will, will for us! That's great. <laughs> be there for. It's now 2018. It's been a long time since uh, that and since Benjamin Britten uh, moved on in 1976. And what a uh, amazing legacy, not just the great operas that he wrote, but the effect that he had on the entire uh, art form. I wanted to uh, speak really uh, focused about Britten and his sexuality. Uh, he has become something of a champion or a hero. Maybe we should say that the, he's been championed by yeah. LGBTQ communities. Right. Uh, you know, and there's often uh, a tendency to claim, for, you know, claim historical figures who precede today's understanding of, of sexuality. Does that work with Benjamin well, Britten? It's an interesting question. Labels are fine in and of themselves as perhaps as a categorization thing, but they are inevitably reductivist. Oversimplification. They are an oversimplification which kind of does not help. What does help, I think, is identification and participation. And it's good for young kids growing up to say, oh, that's a person in a movie who is Asian, who is a leading character. That's a person in a movie who's African-American who's a leading character. And to sort of see yourself represented. Yes, and I think it's very important for kids to be able to say, that's a star on Broadway who's gay. We know from an interview with Peter Pierce, which was included in Tony Palmer's uh, memorial piece for Britain, A Time There Was, which, by the way, I saw in its United States premiere at the British Council with Leonard Bernstein on my left, Aaron Copeland on my right, (laughs) 
Aaron Copeland talking incessantly during the movie, Lenny alternating between saying, oh, oh, this is all about his death, this isn't right, right? Aaron, shut up, Aaron, shut up, Peter, he just always does this, don't pay any attention. <laughs> Aaron, shut up. I kind of thought to myself, you know, it's. I think I need to have some time with this movie by myself <laughs> so I can actually Without not <laughs> worry about is Aaron Copeland going to like start screaming or something. Mystery it, Science Theater 2000. There you the go. Two that's guys kind of, yeah, that's kind of what it was like. It. Beautiful documentary. Beautiful. Uh, in, available in the Seattle Opera gift shop. There you go. In it, Piers talking about what Ben would have felt about the, even the term gay. It wasn't a word that Ben Britton ever used. It was not part of his lexicon. But the word is useful to someone living in 2018. Because it helps a five-year-old, I'm sorry, I knew I was gay when I was five. Um, it helps a kid understand what it means to not be as different as you think you may be. It is the issues which come from the shame of feeling not equivalent and not as good as, that are, I think, at the heart of so much of Benjamin Britten's work. As we know, Britten and Piers both carried on a full-fledged relationship, not a monogamous one, but a relationship in a country where up until 1967 it was illegal. Yeah. Certainly what Britten and Piers were living was an open secret. Yes. It was... In public, but it wasn't in public. Yes, and they lived together. It was also, as I understand it, among sort of gay people of that class in England, it would be pretty weird to have a lifelong partnership with somebody who was your own age, who was your own right. social class, who was your own ethnicity. If you've seen a very, I believe it's called a very English scandal. Uh, which This is, is uh, Hugh Grant. The Hugh Grant and Ben Wishaw. Ben Wishaw. Yeah. Openly gay actor Ben Wishaw. Which, yeah, which a, is a creature great. of the 21st century. Which is great. <laughs> and it's the story of Jeremy Thorpe and his, the person who became his lover. But the, the crazy thing about this, what is astonishing is that the character of Jeremy Thorpe, Hugh Grant basically says, how could I have a relationship? What kind of relationship could I have with him? And so there it's I am. It's just unthinkable. It's unthinkable. There is no template. So I'm watching this. No model. You know, just a couple of months ago. Mm -hmm. But I'm thinking that's the difference. Is that I at least grew up with a pretty clear notion that it was absolutely going to be possible for me to have a relationship with a guy. And, it was, and now it's now been for 42 years. So that I'm very, very lucky in that. I know that, and that was, that's was that been really important to me. Benjamin Britten, Peter Pierce, bit of an anomaly. What, how did that work? What made well, that relationship? Well, I know, good question. I think Peter Pierce was really smart, and the fact that it was a creative and artistic relationship was really important. Britten wrote for Pierce. We know when Britten was writing Billy Budd, he would have Pierce read the text. And Piers would go, I am an old man who has experienced much. And that becomes, I am an old man who has experienced much. So it's not, it's not just that, oh, I kind of know what Peter's voice is like. I'll write for him. Everything but about the cadence. he was actually cadence, there. And yes, he was the it was, he's, person to he's composed in. into, into the fabric of the material. 
which is fantastically interesting. This is the situation with Turn of the Screw, with the big tenor solo towards the end of Act One, where the tenor is, is calling out the name. And I've heard a couple different stories about that very remarkable moment. You can't miss that. It's just like, oh, that was a weird thing when you're, when you're listening to that opera. One story I heard was that Britain had heard Piers singing a medieval composer named Perrotin in the yes, local I cathedral. This, yes. And, oh, he sounds good doing that kind of melismatic early Renaissance, you know, um, coloratura. It's a kind of musical utterance that also sounds like one of those, here's Britain on his tour of the world listening to non-Western music. Well, right. Well, when I was, I did this production in, in Israel, and we rehearsed and did a premiere at a kibbutz, which was called Kafar Menachem, which was a poultry kibbutz. Okay. <laughs> at that end of the first act, it's written that Quint is singing miles from far away. I have sung those first miles as in closets. <laughs> I have sung it in kitchens. I have sung it like off stage like the theater way to, to far so that it's hard away, to hear. Way is far away. Somebody singing there? Yes, exactly. And sometimes with a little pitch pipe with me just so I can get the E flat <laughs> because, you know, other people aren't so considerate and they make noise and they drop trays of food even though I'm singing in the <laughs> when middle. When you're in the kitchen, Whatever. sure. Anyway, so for this one, they were like, you're still too, you're still too close, too close, too close. So I was like, okay. I opened the back door of the theater and I sang directly into the fields. Well, it's also so high. You have to. You can't really. It's, it's, can you sing that piano or pianist? Yeah, oh yeah, you have to. I mean, it's, you have to. It's right there in the in the. It's where just the break on, is. it's where the passaggio is, but it's uh, yeah, it's tricky. But that's <laughs> you know, Peter Pierce was a human oboe, so he could do that. Anyway, there I am in the poultry kibbutz. Screaming my head off at, you know, one in the afternoon during everybody's lunch break. Out of the chickens in the yard. In the- <laughs> singing to the chickens. And people thought that it was a Muslim call to prayer. A muezzin from the top of the minaret. And the people in the theater had to say, no, 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 it's just one of the singers singing. They were like, okay. <laughs> just wanted to check. Well, it's really... It's interesting. This opera is composed in 1954. This actually, I think, I have to check the dates, but I think it's before the famous round-the-world trip where Britain and Piers went to Bali, where after which yes, Britain yes. really starts getting obsessed with Gamelan and puts those in all, all of his other operas in The Prince of the Pagodas, the great ballet that he writes. But there is something that's kind of non-Western yeah, absolutely. Maybe, about just absolutely. the way absolutely. the music for the ghosts works. Yeah, well, certainly Quint because of the melismatic stuff. And in terms of Jessel, it's the gong and the way yeah. that he, she sort of, yeah. all of her music kind of weirdly ripples out of the water, but it doesn't sound like... Or out of the depths. Yeah, anything mm. you've ever heard from right. from uh, anywhere else. I don't know, it seems to me like a composer who's, who's, as you say, on the one hand, marginalized just from his basic experience of being a, a, you know, a, a person with same-sex attractions in a society that absolutely, that's unthinkable, unforgivable, unspeakable. Right. A leading 20th century musicologist, this is Hans Keller, claimed that Britain's sexuality gave him a privileged position from which he could perceive truths that nobody else could see. A lot of this stuff is coded. There are things in all of the operas that I think if you are attuned to it, you kind of get it. The code. There is a lot of code in this opera. I am the hidden life that stirs when the candle is out. Upstairs and down, the footsteps barely heard. The unknown gesture, the soft, persistent word. The long, sighing flight of the night-winged bird. Okay, what is that about? abstract, poetic language. Yeah, it's about sex, to me. Mm -hmm. I'm about the stuff that happens when the light goes out. 
there's a lot of times when you just sort of say, oh, there's something else going on here. Mm-hmm. And I think that if you are used to decoding, which people who are on the outside tend to be used to doing because they need to learn how to bell the cat. Belling the cat meaning you need to put a bell around the cat's neck to let you know when the cat is coming into the room so that you're safe. Because if you don't, if you haven't belled the cat, you can be eaten by the cat. Mm-hmm. So this is what the mice learned to do is to bell the cat. So Come up with little that, signals and yes, codes. And so and, as a gay person, you learn to say, this is a straight person who's problematic. This is a straight person who's friendly. Mm-hmm. This person is sending me a message. This person is sending me a different message. A lot of people, certainly of my era, grew up learning to decode constantly. That was just life. That was just life. Hmm. Tell me about a composer always drawn to subjects that concern something that's unspeakable. In the Billy Budd, it's the word mutiny. In the libretto of that opera, there's all this fuss about (gasps) the word we scarcely dare speak. Right. Uh, in Turn of the Screw, I think it's the, the, the big fight at the end is over pronounce the name. Yes. In the one case, she says that the governess herself offers the name perhaps too early, and she screws it up by putting the label on it. Where my pet is Miss Jessica. Oh, yeah, in the scene before. She doesn't make that same mistake. Yeah, yeah, with Miles, with right. Miles. Exactly. Is it, so what, what is it about pronouncing the word? And is that a, something well, that's I, familiar interesting from thing. Life? I mean, if you're talking about religious... It's naming the name is a big deal, you know, because if you name the name of the demon or if you name the name of Lord the God, God. Yeah. go back to your, your kibbutz yeah. in the Hebrew Testament. Yeah. It's, it's the, the, you the, don't, the, yeah, the you reason nobody knows how to say yeah. Jehovah is it's not written. So it's the, unwritable. Right. So uh, it, it is, in a sense, it's a reduction. It's a reductivist approach to a force. An oversimplification. Yeah. Interesting. Um, so now I'm thinking of other unspeakable, and and now our, the clue affords the uh, the meaning we avoid. So in oh, in Peter Grimes, the meaning we avoid in that case is abuse. Mm-hmm. Britain. We know from the Humphrey Carpenter biography that there were some incidents that happened at his primary school when he was ten or eleven, and it sort of not really dealt with. But it sounds like there was some sort of sexual activity. It sounds like a certain kind of joy left his life after that. Whatever the reasons of it, you cannot argue with the fact that innocence and the loss of innocence and the perversion of innocence are at the core of so much of his work. It's the heart of the turn of the screw. It's absolutely the, the heart of The ceremony of innocence is drowned. Right, which Words is a quote from Yeats. stolen from another yes, story. But that's okay. They, 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 they play a yeah. pivotal role in yes. this opera in sort of saying, what is this really about? Yes, this is our mission statement, say the ghost. <laughs> Rape of Lucretia, obviously about destruction of innocence. Mm-hmm. Albert Herring, it's about someone who is, whose innocence is, whose alleged innocence is being celebrated and who definitely <laughs> is interested in getting rid of that. Turns innocence. out not so to that's, be so that, fond well, of the innocence well, himself. That, yeah, that's, a, that's a someone who is eager to shed that honor. In Billy Budd, the innocence of Budd as, with the fatal flaw, as opposed to the implacable force of evil in Claggart with Veer put in an impossible position. That's another kind of innocence which is destroyed. 
there's also the innocence of someone like von Aschenbach in Death in Venice, who is destroyed by his love for Taju. But interesting that in this case, the, it's the flip, and it's the older person Absolutely. who's really innocent. Yes. So is, if, it's, if these operas are about innocence, then... It's not that, always about kids being perverted by adults, yeah. by in any it, means. It, that takes on a lot, of, which is where you say, you know, oversimplification is a real danger to right. try to exactly. reduce all of these things to something that's more easily managed or more easily, you know, put into a box in our brains. At UCLA, there was a musicologist named Philip Brett. He talks about approaches to turn of the screw... We can have the whole discussion of if the governess is crazy or if the ghosts are real, neither of which approaches I think are particularly helpful. What if what is going on, and this is sort of flammable material, is that Quint is trying to model a kind of positive gay male role model for Miles, who might be a little gay child. What is really important is that a 13-year-old boy is trying to become a man. He's trying to be male, and he doesn't know in this cut-off world. Of he doesn't this, have anybody else. He doesn't know what it even means, yeah, and he's he been cut off from his friends his at school. His father is dead. His father is dead. His he uncle doesn't this, care about him. Right. Quint was at one point a male role model, mm-hmm. but he no longer is, and no one seems to be sort of spending much time talking to him about that. So is it, would you describe it as a crisis of absent fatherhood? Well, I think the crisis is he is changing. I'm growing up, you know, mm. I want my own kind. But, yeah, and but, what, is, what does that mean? Well, well, really, I think what it means is I need to be around boys. I need to play games. Mm. I need to kick a ball around. I need to not have you hanging over my shoulder, governess, every two seconds saying, Hello, Miles. Do you have anything to tell me? Hello, Miles. Do you want to share anything? Sort of suffocating mother. Yes. He needs the other. It's a real thing that happens in real life. So this kid is trying to figure out how to change because the change is inevitable. It's happening. He's trying to figure out how to encompass it, and he can't manage it. Mm-hmm. He's basically crushed to death. See, now, interestingly, the governess thinks of herself as this heroic figure. I'm going to save the child. I'm going to fend off the forces of evil. I'm going to stand up for the moral order. Right. It's supremely hubristic. Who is she? She answers an ad. She comes to do this interview, and she's not the first person he's offered the job to, and she knows that. And I think there were at least two other people who said, thanks, but no thanks. I think this sounds creepy, because <laughs> the, the Guardian has said, you're in charge. If there's anything goes wrong, I don't want to know about it. You just take care of it. That very kernel of the story mm-hmm. is in and of itself extremely strange. Who is this Guardian? Oh, by the way, don't ever write. Don't ever get in. Call, don't call, don't write. Okay, sure. And then she has fallen for him in some way. I don't want to be a disappointment to him. Mm-hmm. So I'm going to do this because the, he needs me. Before Benjamin Britten, let's go back to the continent, 95% of all operas written in Italy, France, and Germany are about a fight between duty and passion. Sure. Is this the 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 English or the 20th century version of this ancient opera tr- tug of war i have to do i have to do this because it's my duty as opposed to my inclination is to do something well else. i mean that's certainly a description of billy budd i think for her there is a duty and it's a moral duty it begins as a kind of challenge to please the guardian but it changes by the end of the first act she's like 
I actually am responsible for these kids. And, they're, they're and the kids have problems. The ki- there is something that Clearly. I can help with. Mm. And when she gets to, when we get to the beginning of Act Two, she's convinced that the kids need saving. And by the end of the first, uh, second scene of Act Two, she's like, I can't do it. I can't, I can't. She says she's going to leave. She's going to run away, but before she gets a chance to leave, she sees Miss Jessel right a great in the school room, with the old... and she's like, "No, damn it, mm-hmm. I am not going to let you take this child." Mm-hmm. And so then she says, "I can't do it by myself. I'm going to write him." Okay, so that's her compromise. So it becomes, "I must protect the children. Mm-hmm. I must guard their quiet and their guardians too." It's still the guardian, but it becomes more about the kids. Mm-hmm. And it is that focus on the kids that ultimately causes the tragedy. She is seduced by how lovely the children are. And again, in the book, there's this tons of description about how just physically appealing they are. The most gorgeous girl ever, only surpassed by how gorgeous her brother was. Radiant. Yeah. Radiant and smiling and charming and wonderful. Well, that's also, that was Britain. Yeah. He was sort of this preternaturally gifted kid, precocious musical right, prodigy. Right. He was good at everything he touched. He was, you know, excellent athlete and, you know, until whatever, as you say, whatever happened at that one school. Somehow the fire was yes. dimmed. Yes. Mafanwi Piper talks about it in Little Brother of Turn of the Screw that it's secrets. Oh, secrets. Do not tell these secrets. Well, so much of the analysis of Turn of the Screw and of people's interpretation seems to be trying to figure it out. What happened if we could just put words to the backstory, which we can't do. I think people need to do that because they want to make themselves feel better. It's easy if you can say, oh, this is a case of demonic possession. Oh, it's just ghosts. (laughs) You know, we know that James, when people said to him, are the ghosts real? He said, I don't know. Do you believe in ghosts? But then, of course, a lot of people want to say the governess is crazy. And to my mind, even though the production, which was the Seattle Opera premiere of this, was a beautiful production and stunning to look at. This is the one starring Lauren Flanagan. Yes, directed colleague. by Mark Lamos with designs by John Conklin. But it is it was complete. She was out of her mind from the beginning. That was clear. There was no clear, ambiguity about She's pulling at her hair. That. She's like... <laughs> and you kind of think, okay, so to begin with, anybody who lets their children be taken care of by someone like this... <laughs> needs to be visited by Child Protective Services. But <laughs> but yes, indeed, my problem with all of these is that it lets the audience off the hook because the answer is, at the end of this opera, you have a destroyed child and a dead child. Flora is clearly has been broken, and Miles is clearly dead. What are you going to do about that, audience? With this opera, you can't get off the hook. If you have been born with a sense of empathy, you will understand that something really terrible has happened. Mm-hmm. Was Britain a social justice composer? You know, when we did The Console a couple of years yeah. ago, you directed a, a piece which has a very you know, specific social commentary about immigration and, and you know, a government that makes it impossible. I think what certainly concerned him was the plight of children. But it's I just a really place, a kind of story that happens to get his, his music flowing. Yeah. If he, you know, we could teleport Britain somehow out of the 20th century and into 2018. In Washington, gay marriage is you know, perfectly normal. Would Britain recognize this world? Would he uh, I think find that actually think nothing would. changed? I've spent a fair amount of time in the past year with Matt O'Coin, who's L.A. opera artist in residence for these years and who's brilliant a composer, and the L.A. opera is going to be doing a premiere of his work, which will then go to the Met, and he's great. He's gay. 
he also has red close curling hair and he's from Massachusetts. These are all aspects of his life. Matt lives with a guy, Clay, and they're just, you know, they're just a couple. That's it. And that's just normal that's life in LA. That's part of it. And I think that Britain would have understood that because I think he ultimately was like that. People should have the right to have, in the words of the woman who won the award for the Oscar for Best Documentary years ago for her story about being a Holocaust survivor, she said, you know, this is in honor of all the people who never had the chance to know that exquisite paradise, that heaven, which is a boring evening at home with someone you love. And that's what makes up most of life. <laughs> You know, and it is really not for anybody else to dictate what that is. Mm -hmm. Peter Cazares, thanks so much for taking the time Thank you, to share your insights with us. We look forward to the turn of the screw.